0: The month-long buildup of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine has turned now into an invasion. I don't think Putin would have contemplated invading Ukraine if he hadn't had so much leverage over Europe in terms of energy. Now, it was a massive miscalculation in every respect, but he had every reason to believe the Europeans would not line up to defend Ukraine because they couldn't live without his gas. Energy independence is key to national security. Seems pretty obvious, but it's been overlooked. And so I wanted to talk to somebody who's also at the centre of Europe, a Polish woman called Anna Mikulska, about the way in which energy security and in particular the transition to clean energy can defend democracy just as effectively as it can defend our planet itself anna how did the europeans and the germans in particular get into this situation where they became so dependent on an authoritarian expansionist power like Russia.
1: So I think there is an important uh, thing to distinguish between the different European nations. And in fact, there is the division between the West and the East of Europe, which perceived Russia and the danger of geopolitical intervention and military intervention, as a matter of fact, very differently. So in the West, we had this more kind of relaxed attitude, um, particularly on the part of Germany, thinking about Ostpolitik. We can change Russia by working uh, economically. We have worked with Russia economically. In fact, we have been receiving gas since 1970s from Russia under the Cold War. So why wouldn't we receive, wouldn't we be receiving it now? Um, And that kind of atmosphere has been prevailing. Whereas in the east of Europe and Central Europe, so Poland, Baltics in particular, there has been much less kind of uh, open attitude. Uh, there has been actually a lot of uh, uh, a lot of talk about being careful about building too much of dependence on gas uh, from Russia, in particularly the uh, the attitude towards Nord Stream two.
0: And I, I look, I, I understand that. And I, in fact, I, I, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, I was involved in financing a gold project in Russia and we were we were all very optimistic, you know, that yeah. democracy was going to reign and that the liberalisation was an inexorable trend. We'd all read Francis Fukuyama's, end, you know, The End of History and it was all happening. Everything was good. Uh, but... And and I guess you can understand everyone being swept up in that. But it's been obvious for at least a decade, and certainly very, very vividly since 2014 when Putin occupied Crimea, the trend of history in Russia is going in the other direction. It's becoming more authoritarian, more expansionist, more of a threat to its neighbours. You know, the the sort of the the cuddly, cosy idea that Russia was going to become, you know, a normal European or, you know, Western democracy is over. Why do you think the, the Western Europeans, at least, uh, continued to ignore that change and continued to become even more dependent on Russia for their vital energy supplies.
1: Look, I was the one swept away by the changes, right? I was a 12, 13-year-old kid, which was watching what was happening in her country, since I'm Polish, and and the changes. uh, Lech Wałęsa, Mazowiecki, uh, the different type of regimes, and also what was happening in Russia. And I truly thought that, that the democracy is on expand and, and be part of the Russian experience at that time. That obviously changed. Vladimir Putin has truly kind of pushed the country into very different direction. Um, I am not sure why Western Europe has been kind of uh, really, uh, you know, at ease with that, particularly until after 2014. If all the sanctions that have been introduced now have been introduced in 2014, things would have been very different for Russia.
0: Mm, yeah, it's a, it, it is a, it's, it's a, it's very intriguing, sort of almost a psychological question. I mean, I often wonder why Angela Merkel was so. Uh, content to proceed with increased dependence on Russia for gas, because if there was any leader in Western Europe that understood Putin, it was her. I mean, I, I've i sat with her on several occasions, talked about Putin. They were more or less the same age. They were both in East Germany when the wall came down. Mm-hmm. For her, it was, you know, the opening of a new era, the opportunity for freedom. It was an exhilarating chance, I guess, a historic chance for something new. For Putin, it was the worst, you know, event right, in, the opposite. in in history. Yeah, complete opposite. But nonetheless, they were there. And so she she does have a real understanding and empathy with him. She speaks Russian. I felt she understood him and she understood the Russians. But under her leadership, Germany became more and more dependent on on Russian gas.
1: There was to some extent, uh, besides the ex- that historic, uh, historical experience, I think there was also this kind of position, well, we are the biggest market for Russian gas. It would make no sense, rationally speaking, it would make no sense to do something to lose this market. And Germany thought, you know, just like we are dependent on Russia, well, Russia is also dependent on us. That,
0: that, that, that's a really good point. No, no, Anna, that, that is an absolutely key point and it's something that in Australia we have to remind ourselves of with China because a lot of Australians say, yes. oh my God, you know, China's a third of our exports, that's where we send almost all of our iron ore and much of our energy exports, you know, we are so dependent on China. On the other hand, if you're looking at it from a Chinese point of view, they're saying, well, we get... You know, half, more than half of our iron ore from Australia. We're very dependent on the Australians, and it's a, that's a that's a very it's a very good reminder. I mean, trade uh, takes two to tango. So, Anna, you you you're born in Poland. You you moved to Canada. You've you've uh, you're now living in the United States, and you were recently testifying before the Congress on the the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the, particularly with respect to global energy security. So, what have we learned? Where are we now? Mm-hmm. You know, a year plus into the invasion.
1: One thing that within the energy markets and with the energy policy that has changed is the appreciation for energy security. Right. We all need to worry about energy security because if there is no energy security, we cannot move further for whatever we are hoping for in the future. That's why when people talk about often, you know, energy transition versus energy security, I say, well, no, there has to be energy security so we can move step further and step further and step further. Otherwise, our, um, our exercise may be in vain.
0: Yeah, so how is Western Europe? Well, how is Europe? Uh, it's, it's not getting Russian gas at the moment. It's uh, getting some.
1: It's getting still some gas, yes.
0: So, so what would be the percentage of the decline in Russian gas exports to Europe? Do Oh, it's
1: been it's been huge. It's been uh, maybe eighty percent, maybe ninety percent, really. So it's huge. It's a huge,
0: huge, huge, huge decline. Yes. Okay. So, so two questions. Uh, Firstly, how has Europe plugged that gap? What 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 have they been? You know, it's a very short time, but it's a big change. How, How have they plugged the gap?
1: It hasn't. That's the big thing. It has not plugged the gap. I think the narrative that we hear about Europe plugging the gap is actually false. Uh, Europe has not plugged the gas. It has survived on less gas over the last winter. And part of it must be might be savings, which is great because you know you want you want the savings, right? Also Europe was blessed with a great winter weather. Uh, so that was really, really lucky uh, for Europe, because it was able to kind of uh, sit and be, uh, you know, on the on the storage, uh, on the gas storage that it filled uh, in in the fall.
0: So, do you do you think Europe is going to be able? What if next winter is a cold winter?
1: It would be a very difficult winter, regardless whether the storage in. Europe
0: is for. Mm, okay, well, it sounds like it's going to be a could be a very rocky winter ahead for Europe. What and and the rest of the world on gas? What what about Russia? How has it managed to handle the you know the lack of cash flow from the sales to Europe?
1: Gas, in generally, in Russia, gas, in my opinion, has been always a geopolitical tool. It's. Economic value was the secondary to geopolitical value. We also have to remember that Gazprom, as a state company, its main, actually, role has not been export of gas to Europe or anywhere else. Its main role is to support domestic markets. So when I was looking at the, uh, the data in June, at the very least, that's where I had my data and in June, Gazprom was sending one quarter of gas to Europe compared to what it was sending the year before. But it was getting the same amount of money for it because of how high the prices were. So uh, the narrative that Gazprom hasn't been getting money until uh, for for a long time is not correct.
0: To what extent, uh, longer term, do you think Russia will be able to substitute the lost demand in Europe uh, with increased demand from China,
1: it does not substitute. Russia does not substitute the the European uh, the Chinese demand for for European demand. So, where the European the gas from Europe is coming from in Russia does not connect to the pipeline that goes to China. It uh, so Western Siberia is supporting uh, uh, Europe. Western Siberian uh, fields, Eastern Siberia is supporting. China and only China actually. China was very, very careful about making sure that Russia does not have the arbitrage opportunity between it and Europe. So there is no connection between these. Now, what Putin really wants to do is he wants to build, uh, Russia wants to build the power of Siberia 2 pipeline that indeed would reach into the Western Siberian fields where now where Europe has been fed from, go from uh, Mong- Mongolia and to into China. It's interesting because Russia has been talking about power of Siberia since uh, since 2014, when, when the, the, the generally the discussion, uh, that China picked up the discussion on having a pipeline uh, from Russia, but uh, because China had an upper hand, uh, it was able to argue for the power of Siberia 1 coming through from the eastern Siberia fields. Now Putin is talking about power of Siberia 2 through uh, Mongolia. He's talking about a lot. China
0: hasn't committed to anything yet. That's interesting. So, so ch- from China's point of view, they would prefer to have their gas supplied from Eastern Siberia, which is thousands of kilometers from the Western Siberian gas fields. And therefore, Putin does not have the opportunity to sell that gas to anyone else.
1: Yes. And it's not the last
0: thing they want to do is have the Western Siberian and Eastern Siberian gas fields connected. Because then Putin could send gas either way.
1: I think at some point they will agree to it, but they're waiting for Russia to be in extremely weak. Uh, weak situation. So their bargaining position is stronger. In fact, that's exactly what happened in 2014, when Russia was in a weak position versus China after sanctions, after uh, after the Crimea, and uh, after sanctions have been imposed, and China was able to get what it wanted. Uh, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think uh, China's been, if you like, the big winner in this war in Ukraine. So, so what is the lesson? I mean, we've seen... Europe allowed itself to become very dependent on Russia in terms of energy. Uh, what what are the lessons that the Western democracies should draw from this uh, in terms of how we manage our uh, energy and generally supply chain security in the future in how we deal with the authoritarian countries?
1: I think the number one is what I've mentioned already is that energy security is important for many reasons. Now, number two is that energy security depends to a good extent on diversity. Now I believe a lot of this we've been talking about diversity away from Russia right now in Europe, but also on diversity of and types of energy we actually consume. So if one is affected, it can can be substituted and other can be used. And I I don't think that message has resonated yet uh it's we talk a lot about getting rid of Russian oil getting rid of russian uh, Russian uh, russian, uh, uh gas uh, but if that's the case are we actually limiting the diversity if, if we or if we're getting com- completely out of oil and gas and coal and we going electrify everything well doesn't it mean that we're actually decreasing diversity of energy doesn't it mean that it could actually at some point become a problem? How we diversify is important. And as I said, if we, if countries are not secure in terms of supply of energy, they might want to move forward, but they will, might not be able to.
0: No, look, I, I agree with you. Diversity is absolutely critical uh, for in any, uh, you know, trading economic relationship, particularly of a strategic kind. And I think it underlines the importance of the transition to renewables. I mean, the reality is that the cheapest form of generation of electricity pretty much everywhere in the world is wind and solar today. And the, you know, no country has ever been threatened with the deprivation of sunlight or the deprivation of wind. Uh, So, you know, the, the move to renewable energy is not just important in terms of Saving the planet from global warming, but it's also it gives greater energy security. And uh, you know, I, I hope this uh, this experience for the Europeans is going to accelerate that transition because it it is a you know the energy security aspect of the renewable transition. I think is uh, in many respects just as important as the environmental. Uh, objective
1: yeah but we have to remember about the rare earths and the critical minerals that are needed for renewables and for backup power so uh, batteries and so on that could at some mm. point become a geopolitical issue, given mm. that China is um, has a monopoly, uh, basically at at, at uh, yes. you know at at producing, but also at at, uh, uh, at uh, processing them. Ninety percent of rare earths is processed in China, uh, so that's something that we really need to think about.
0: Yeah, that's that, that's Anna. That's true. No, no, that you're absolutely right. And but but I I just say this as an Australian. The China dominates the processing of those rare earths, but it doesn't dominate, it's not the, you know, by any means the uh, dominant source oh, of- Oh no,
1: yeah, labor. they are everywhere.
0: The reality is this, you know, they're found throughout the world. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The, the reality is we, we in the West have allowed China, simply by our own insouciance, we've allowed China to become the dominant supplier of processor of rare earths, true, but also the dominant supplier of solar panels. I mean, the yes. most rapidly deployed form of renewable generation at the rate of 20% per annum growth, which is gigantic. I, mean, I don't think anything has ever grown at that rate in history, is uh, solar panels, and, you know, 85 90% of them are made in China. Now, now again, of course, it gets back to the dependency point that you make. I mean, it's one thing to say we're very dependent on China, but if you're a solar panel manufacturer, you're very dependent on your global customers. So, you know, we're dependent on each other. But it is, I mean, Fatty Burrell, the director of the Energy, International Energy Agency, was making this point recently uh, to us here in Australia that the, you know, wh- whatever view you have of China's, you know, intentions, you know, attitude, posture, whether it's malign, benign or, you know, whatever, it doesn't make sense to have a vital... Uh, commodity, which is really what they are now, are uh, being so totally dominated by one market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and, and especially the one that it's not necessarily the friendliest towards us, uh, you know, be it in Australia in the West, and, yeah. and the West generally mm. speaking. Mm. So it doesn't make sense, but it will take time. We were kind of, you know, asleep at the wheel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, kind of waiting, uh, waiting for uh, for something to happen and I guess the crisis has made it quite clear: diversity is important.
0: Well, Anna, it's a it's a hell of a way to learn the wisdom of what all of our grandmothers told us, which is don't put all your eggs in one basket. But
1: uh, absolutely, but,
0: uh, look, thank you, thank you very, very much. It's been wonderful to talk with you and meet you, and and I, you know, commend you on your work and look forward to uh, staying in touch on this and other strategic issues. Thank you.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Czajka.